Sentire Media. Hello everyone, you're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 92, Boniface VIII, Peaks and Crashes. In the last episode, we saw the rise to power of a man with a powerful character, Benedetto Caetani, who became Pope Boniface VIII. We saw him clash with King Philip IV of France over taxation issues and reach a compromise, and then we left him set to bring his considerable wrath on the Colonna family faction opposing his papacy. He had deposed and excommunicated two Colonna cardinals, Giacomo and his nephew Pietro. After that, he definitely did not put on the brakes. Far from it. He called for an actual crusade with the real purpose of exterminating the Colonna family. The papal forces took castle after castle belonging to the Colonna, and when the Colonna had understood that they were doomed in 1298, they sought to reconcile with the Pope, appearing before him as penitents, bareheaded, barefooted, and kneeling at his feet. This, however, was just a brief respite, and the fighting soon broke out again and saw the Colonna faction reduced to the single city of Palestrina, with the two ex-Colonna cardinals, Giacomo and Pietro, actually fleeing to France and the safety of the court of Philip in later years. If you're wondering if Boniface was gracious in victory, well, he wasn't. After taking the city by siege, he expelled the inhabitants and had it razed to the ground. What's more, like Carthage of old, he had the land ploughed over and salt spread on the ruins, so that nothing could grow there. In this he was driven by blind and passionate vengeance to eradicate the Colonna from the face of history. Their lands and possessions were divided up. Among those captured in the siege of Palestrina was one of the opposition leaders, the Franciscan Jacopone da Todi, who ended up spending five years in prison. Unfortunately for Boniface, he was also a historian, and you can bet that he didn't have a lot of good things to say about the Pope. So, as the new century approached, Pope Boniface VIII could be quite pleased with himself. The peace of Caltabellotta had not yet come about to seal his failure, so there was still hope for the Sicilian question, especially with the proposed French intervention under Charles of Valois, brother to the king. Speaking of the French, he was in a period of cautious truce with the king over the whole tax thing in France. Add to all of this that he had seen off an internal threat of the Colonna faction, and you can see why he was in a good mood, a mood to celebrate, and what a party he would throw. 
Now, the idea of celebrating the arrival of the new century with a jubilee was not originally his. Already before the end of 1299, people had started to gather in Rome. Indeed, the Pope did not actually officially declare the jubilee until the 22nd of February of 1300, but he made sure it was retroactive. The idea was already in the Bible that every 50 years there would be a special year in which the slaves would be liberated, debts would be forgiven, and possessions would be sold to help the poor. Obviously, this never actually happened, but it was in the rule book. So, Boniface announced that all those that visited the churches of St. Peter and St. Paul in Rome on that year would receive indulgence, i.e. forgiveness for their sins, especially and particularly if they brought some cold, hard cash to the coffers of the Pope, who badly needed it. It is estimated that around 200,000 people visited Rome that year. At a certain point, the traffic was so congested that the authorities intervened to regulate circulation on the bridge of Castel Sant'Angelo to avoid gridlock. Clerics would stand near the altars with rakes so they could spend all day raking the money left as offerings. In short, it was a propaganda and financial triumph and as Boniface stood to look out on the crowds and count the money flowing in, you can imagine him feeling a moment of triumph. The Jubilee has been celebrated every hundred years since then. Unfortunately for the Pope, the triumph was a fleeting illusion. First of all, if he had looked very carefully at the crowds that had flocked to the Eternal City, he would have seen people from almost all rungs of the social ladder, including people high up, people of importance and wealth. However, there were no kings nor other rulers. If he thought that men of great power, those who counted on the European chessboard, would be coming to Rome to pay homage to him, ask for forgiveness for their sins and lay down a nice jangling bag of cash, he was mistaken. Then, as we said before, all of the situations that had been on hold would soon come violently back to prominence. Having said this, Boniface still had a little bit of time for some more manoeuvring. First of all, the same year of the Jubilee, he gave King Charles II of Naples permission to move against the city of Lucera. You will remember that the city of Lucera in Puglia, southeast of Italy, was home to a Muslim community that had been moved there, forcibly but peacefully, by Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II after the Muslims had rebelled in Sicily. After that, the community had become the Hohenstaufen's most loyal supporters. They had sided with the emperor's grandson, Corradino, in his attempt to take back the kingdom of Sicily from Charles of Anjou, but in the end had had to submit to Charles after Corradino's defeat at the Battle of Tagliacozzo in 1268. Charles then allowed the Muslim community to carry on as they had done in exchange for a hefty tribute. His son, 
Charles II was not so tolerant. He had already shown his colours by expelling all Jews from his lands and organising the massacre of the Jews in Naples in 1289. So it was that in the year of the Jubilee, Charles moved against the Muslims of Lucera. The rich families were quick to save themselves by converting to Christianity. Those who did not convert were massacred, men, women and children. Those with less means who converted to avoid being killed were then sold as slaves. Frederick II's unusual experiment in religious tolerance was at an end. Charles II could now pay his debts to the Florentine bankers. Speaking of Florence, Pope Boniface also decided he would stick his nose in the complicated and violent politics of that city too. Before we go there, however, just a quick message from our sponsor. Among the many thousands who flocked to Rome for the Jubilee, there would have been numerous Florentines. Among said Florentines, there were the agents of the Black Guelphs. Now, we saw a couple of episodes back that we can consider the Battle of Campaldino in 1289 the definitive defeat of the Ghibellines by the Guelphs. So, what do you do when you no longer have an enemy? Well, you find a new one. So it was that the Guelphs of Florence split into the Black Guelphs, the faction of elitist rich families headed by the Donati family, and the White Guelphs, a group closer to the popular classes and in favour of greater independence of the city, led by the Cherki family of more recent wealth. The blacks reached out to Boniface and, in time, became the champions of papal authority over the city and Tuscany in general. After violence broke out in May of 1300, the Pope brought in Charles of Valois as a peacemaker, but this event eventually led to the Whites being exiled from the city. Indeed, it was while the poet Dante Alighieri, a member of the White faction, was being stalled in a diplomatic mission to the Pope that he received his sentence of exile or death. He would never return to his city. We'll talk more about Florence and the White and Black Welves and Dante in a couple of episodes. For now, this is another example of Pope Boniface's dealings in Italian politics. We must now turn our attention once again to the clash with Philip of France. After all, how could there not be a clash between the king of what had become perhaps one of the most powerful nations in Europe and a pope who believed that he should have power over all monarchs? We have seen that they had clashed over taxes and they were also manoeuvring and counter-manoeuvring on the European stage, which we won't go into. Also, Philip by now was sheltering the hated Colonna, who had escaped the clutches of the Pope. The cause for a new flare-up came when the Bishop of Pamiers, Bernard Saisset, was arrested. He was very close to Boniface, who went into meltdown at the arrest. 
By now, we were in 1301. The Pope came out with the very aptly named bull, Ausculta Fili, meaning, listen, son, in which he had a good old gripe at Philip and reasserted his idea about papal supremacy. Philip once again showed his political cunning. He freed the bishop in question, so he was seen officially as obeying. However, he came up with a doctored version of the bull, going much heavier on the papal criticism towards the king and increasing the idea of papal interference. The French nobles were livid, and Philip managed to get them all on his side, with one masterful propaganda stroke. He continued to do as he pleased. Boniface grew increasingly annoyed, so on the 18th of November, 1302, he dropped the bomb, the Unam Sanctum Bull. In this document, he spoke of the need for everyone to adhere to a universal church which had power over all living beings. The bull also contained a little Lego-lingo magic that would make Saul Goodman proud. And that is the interpretation of the whole Two Swords business. So, let's go to the Gospel of St. Luke. Jesus is almost at the end of his life, and he tells his disciples that if they don't have a sword, they should sell their stuff and buy one. To this, the disciples say, Hey, look, Lord, we have two. Now, the response that Jesus gives in the Latin version of the Bible is satis est. Now, in English, that comes out as that's enough. Now, as a parent, we know very well that that's enough can mean enough of this, I'm getting rather annoyed. However, it can also mean two swords are sufficient. They're enough. From here stems the interpretation of the two swords, representing two powers. The spiritual, to be wielded by the church, and the secular, to be wielded by the rulers upon indication of the church. Then Boniface takes us to the Gospel of St. Matthew and Jesus' arrest. Peter takes out a sword and lops off the ear of one of the soldiers. So then Jesus says, put your sword away. Aha, says Pope Boniface. See, your sword. Jesus said that the sword of secular power, the one that gets the business done, is Peter's, the first pope. And so, who is the descendant of Peter and rightful owner, therefore, of both swords in question? Well, says Boniface, that would be me. In short, anyone who does not submit to the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, the source of every power, goes against God himself and is therefore can meet with no other fate than excommunication. King Philip the Fair of France was excommunicated the following year in 1303. 
In response, the king convened an assembly of French nobles and clergymen, which launched the following series of accusations against the Pope. Heresy. Simony, i.e. the buying of religious offices. Murder, theft, incest, sodomy, and magic. The willing testimony of the Colonna in attendance helped things along. The Pope was declared deposed and a deposition party was sent to make sure the deed got done. The Pope was arrested in Anagni and it was during the two days of imprisonment that the famous slap of Anagni was supposed to have occurred when one Sharra Colonna, obviously a member of the Colonna family, was said to have slapped the Pope. But apparently that never really happened. But it's fun to say the slap of Anagni. After two days, the city rebelled against the Pope's capture and he managed to escape and make it back to Rome and the protection of the Orsini family. However, by now he was a broken man, wallowing in defeat and suffering from gout and kidney stones. Pope Boniface VIII died on the 11th of October, 1303. The death of the man did not stop Philip's first for vengeance and he insisted that a by now captive pope in Avignon, Clement V, continued the trial against Boniface. In the end, he was not found guilty, but his sentences against the king and the Colonna family were all reversed. Philip's undying hate helped shape the legacy of Boniface for many years, and being thrust into hell by Dante Alighieri didn't really help either. Even in the late 20th century, we hear tales of superstition claiming that Boniface had his own set of golden dice made, which also touches upon his supposed love for extravagance with jeweled clothes. Others write of his gluttony, with scenes of the Pope complaining of only getting a six-course meal during a day of fasting. Indro Montanelli again would even have him respond to a man imploring with him for the help of Jesus by saying, Jesus was a man like us. If he couldn't save himself, what do you think he can do for you? He makes Boniface out as an outright atheist, which is not ideal for the job position he held. I can't really attest to the truth of a lot of these episodes, but I have not found them mentioned elsewhere so far. One thing we can say is that he loves showing himself and he's the first Pope to show up on statues and paintings, perhaps allowing him to be considered one of the first Renaissance Pope and patron of the arts. In any case, by the 1930s his image was improving at least in part. He did do a lot to reorganise the Vatican archives and the church in general. If you exclude Florence, he generally favoured the communes and the democratic institutions against interference of other powers, although this may also have been to his convenience. He can't really be accused of excessive nepotism, not any much above the norm, with his family not gaining exaggeratedly from his papacy. Indeed, the Caetani remained very much out of the struggles we mentioned. He founded and encouraged universities, among which is the renowned La Sapienza in Rome, today one of the universities with the most students in Europe. 
Whatever the historic judgment on Boniface VIII may be, we can say that his was an inflexible papal clash with European powers in the era of the dawn of the modern nations. One of the last examples of a medieval pope. Thanks very much to everyone for listening. Thanks in particular to my Patreon supporters, the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Anthony G, Silane, Chanel, David L, Dean V, Gordon Z, Greg, Ignacio, Jeffrey W, Old John in Milwaukee, Kevin, Marxist Leninist Sicilian, Neville, Patrizia Kappa, Peter W, Rene B, Roberta D, Rodney N the Question Master, Rudy F, Scott L, Shelby, and Stephen, and the tippy-top Maria Montessori and Dante Ligieri level, Sen, Paolo, Lisa K, JW, Andrew M, Brandon S, and Maxime. Thank you, thank you, one and all. Remember, if you want to get in touch, hello at ahistoryofitaly.com, drop a line just to say hello, ask a question, share some deep insight about something, whatever you like. At the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can click through to our social media, we are on Twitter, Facebook, and now Instagram, so come and see us there as well. There is also a support page where you can join the growing ranks of wonderful Patreon supporters or support via PayPal to help the show continue to chug along up and beyond episode 100, which is coming along soon. Once again, thanks very much to everyone for listening, and until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.